0: A very warm welcome to First Move. I'm Rahel Solomon in today for Julia Chatterley. Another busy day on the program. The U.S. and England celebrate their World Cup advance. Fed Chair Powell delivered an important speech on finance. And on Wall Street, a higher open. We've still got a chance. U.S. futures pretty flat at the moment after two days of losses for the S&P 500. Europe, meantime, is firmly higher, with new numbers showing Eurozone inflation slowing for the first time in 17 months. Closely watched U.S. data has just been released, too. An updated read on third-quarter GDP shows the American economy expanding at an annual rate of 2.9 percent. That is a stronger pace than the initial reading and also a better performance than expected. In Asia, meantime, another strong showing for the Hang Seng. That said, weak Chinese factory was also released. Data was also released today, and it is a further sign that zero-COVID policies are pressuring the world's second-largest economy. But the main event for global markets today takes place less than five hours from now, and Fed Chair Powell delivers a policy speech at the Brookings Institution. Will Powell coo like a dove or talk like a hawk on the size and scope of rate hikes? We will discuss later in the program with Christina Hooper. She is the chief global market strategist at Invesco. But first, we begin in China, where China is seeing more COVID protests despite government attempts to stop them. This new video here shows angry protesters shouting and throwing objects at riot police in the major city of Guangzhou. Ivan Watson joins us now from Hong Kong with the latest. Ivan, it appears that these protests have escalated, at least these protests, from just protests to clashes with police. I mean, how significant are these latest rounds of protests?
1: You were looking at some pretty startling images from the southern city of Guangzhou Tuesday night where riot police were dressed in white hazmat suits carrying shields in in confrontations uh, with residents there. Uh, What's all the more startling is then the next day city officials... Uh, announced the relaxation of some COVID restrictions. The Chinese state appears to be in a bit of a dance right now, talking very tough, promising to calm down hard on demonstrators while also showing signs of uh, relaxing some of the onerous COVID restrictions that have made people so ha- angry. China's police state strikes back flooding the streets of Beijing and Shanghai with police. An unmistakable show of force after a weekend of unprecedented protests in at least 15 cities across the country. In the eastern city of Hangzhou Monday night, police arrest people in a central square. And an eyewitness tells CNN, police search people's phones on the Shanghai subway, looking for apps that allow users to circumvent China's strict internet censorship. The Communist Party's Domestic Security Committee ordering officials to resolutely strike hard against infiltration and sabotage activities by hostile forces, as well as criminal activities that destabilize social order. No compromise for peaceful protesters to voice their opinion. Meanwhile, health officials striking a slightly softer tone, calling for shorter lockdowns in the Chinese government campaign to eradicate COVID-19. We need to minimize the inconvenience to the general public because of the anti-COVID-19 measures. As for the high-risk regions, we must have rigorous control. But at the same time, we should spare no effort to provide services to meet people's basic living needs and medical needs. A carrot-and-stick approach from different parts of the Chinese state. After the biggest nationwide display of discontent this tightly controlled country has seen, in a generation. So, Rahel, Guangzhou recorded close to a th- 7,000 COVID cases on Tuesday. That makes it a veritable hotbed of the virus by Chinese standards. And yet the authorities today announced that they were lifting lockdowns from four of the city's districts and they were no longer going to send close contacts of COVID cases to government quarantine. That's another measure that is, is, is so difficult for the population. Meanwhile, Beijing has announced that it's not going to impose uh, as much COVID testing as it has. People there have needed to get tests every 48 hours just to ride on public transport. Rahel?
0: And Ivan, meantime, we've also learned that former Chinese President Zhang Zhumen has died. Internationally, he will perhaps be best remembered for his economic reforms. How else, Ivan, do you think he will be remembered?
1: Well, he's 96 years old uh, at passing today, uh, dying from leukemia and multiple organ failure. He's already being lauded by uh, the Chinese government and the Communist Party, which has called him a, quote, great Marxist, a great proletarian revolutionary statesman, military strategist and diplomat. Uh, And we can anticipate big state funeral uh, for Jiang Zemin. Online, there's a a certain amount of nostalgia uh, for this man who was president of China when uh, it hosted the 2008 Olympics. Uh, He uh, then ruled the country as the the top official uh, of the Communist Party during a a period when China was opening up more to the world. Uh, When uh, the handover of uh, Hong Kong, uh, the peaceful handover took place in 1997, he was president at that time. Uh, And the the difference between his time in office and today is pretty stark, when China has quite literally been cut off from the outside world for some three years due to COVID restrictions. It's almost impossible to get in the country from the outside, uh, and there's perceived to be much less freedom to discuss uh, than there had been uh, during his time. It felt perhaps a little bit more like China, China was growing more economically and life was getting better than it feels today. Rahul?
0: Very interesting. Ivan Watson, good to have you. Thank you. Now turning to the Qatar World Cup, Saudi Arabia set to clash with Mexico to qualify for the round of 16. Also today, Lionel Messi's Argentina must win against Poland to secure its place in the next round. This, as fans here in the U.S. celebrating yesterday's big win against Iran, Amanda Davis is live in Doha with more. So Amanda, a lot on tap today, but still plenty of reaction to that game yesterday. I mean, I watched. And despite Iran's best efforts, even into the like last minutes of the game, they just couldn't get it done.
2: Yeah, and this is the point we're at with this tournament now, Rahel. If I tell you a number of the Iranian players already on an airplane back to Tehran with lots of questions being asked about what this is exit for their team means for the players and their families. You might remember it was this point yesterday we were talking uh, about the threats that their families had received uh, if the players weren't going to behave, as the word that was used uh, ahead of the match. So those players are on the plane. Some have remained here. But for the U.S., it is now all about building up to that round of sixteen game uh, against the Netherlands, uh, you have seen from the pictures of the team arriving back at their hotel in the early hours of the morning just what this result means to Greg Berhalter's young and, and hungry side, and absolutely they deserve to be celebrating this moment—a uh, first U.S. place in the rounds of sixteen since Brazil. In 2014, a lot of questions had been asked about how this young side, 25 out of 26 of them playing in a World Cup for the first time, were going to cope with the pressure on them at that match. They did it admirably. Up stepped Captain America Christian Pulisic with the decisive goal. But the big question over the last 12 hours or so is is he going to be fit to play in the next round? He was taken off the pitch straight to hospital where he had some scans, examinations for what is being called a a pelvic contusion. There is good news, though, for U.S. fans. This is what their coach, Greg Berhalter, told CNN this morning a short while ago.
1: He seems to be doing good. Um, just spoke with him a couple minutes ago, and we're going to see what he can do on the training field tomorrow. And hopefully, he'll be he'll be ready for the game against Netherlands. But in terms of his contribution to the group, you know, I, I've said all along: when one of your most talented players is also one of your hardest workers, you know, you're in a good spot,
3: and that's that.
1: Defies Christian. Well,
3: how are you feeling
1: right now? Feel good. You
3: know, I think it's just about focus. You know,
1: we're like, we're not done. It's nice to get to the, to the next round, but well, we want to keep going. Um, the, we, we had two tournaments that we were looking at, the group stage tournament and the knockout tournament. And now we're here in the knockout. We just want to keep this thing rolling.
2: I tell you what Rahel there's a few other teams who aren't done yet uh, Lionel Messi's Argentina up against Robert Lewandowski's Poland Argentina knowing it's a match they must win if they want to be heading through to the round of 16 if you'd have told people at the start of this tournament we would be in this situation with Messi on the brink not only of a tournament exit but perhaps the end of his international career people would not have believed you but they suffered that shock defeat to Saudi Arabia and here we are with Saudi Arabia and their not small contingent of fans many of whom are behind me here very much wanting to make some history of their own with uh, if they beat Mexico they will be the ones heading through to the round of 16 for the first time since 1994.
0: Amanda Davis good to have you thank you. I think the World Cup has produced a lot of surprises this year. And, Justin, we are getting reports of an explosion at the Ukrainian embassy in Madrid. One person is said to be slightly hurt and in the hospital. Spanish police are investigating. If we learn more, we will, of course, bring it to you at home. Meanwhile, America's top diplomat says Vladimir Putin has focused his ire and fire on Ukrainian civilians. Russia has bombed more than a third of Ukraine's electricity and water supply in just the past few weeks. Secretary of State Antony Blinken vowed ironclad support for Ukraine at a NATO meeting in Romania. And NATO ministers are pledging more arms and more equipment to help Ukraine restore its damaged infrastructure.
4: Ukraine has uh, made significant gains, but we must uh, not underestimate Russia. Russian missiles and drones continue to strike Ukrainian cities, civilians um, and critical infrastructure. This is causing enormous human suffering as winter sets in.
0: And as that bitter winter sets in, Matthew Chance brings us extraordinary footage from the front line in eastern Ukraine.
5: The brutal fight for Bakhmut, where Ukrainian troops are battling Russia's onslaught. These exclusive images are from the soldiers themselves, their commanders tell us dozens of lives are now being sacrificed here every day. The road into town is heavy with thick smoke and danger. Explosions ahead force us to pull over before another slams into a building close by. Alright, well you can hear the incoming rounds. The incoming rounds from Russian artillery fire are really intensive here as we have entered the outskirts of Bakhmut, which is, you know, certainly from everything we're seeing, everything we've been told, is now the most fiercely contested patch of ground in the entire Russia-Ukrainian conflict. So 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 Быстро! 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 Quickly,
6: quickly.
5: Quickly, quickly. So fierce, we made a rapid exit, leaving the relentless barrage behind. Much of this battle is fought avoiding the artillery threat. In underground bunkers like these, where local Ukrainian commanders like Pavlo can respond to Russian attacks. They're assaulting our positions from early morning till night, he tells me. But the real problem is we are heavily outnumbered, he says. But the innovative use of low cost tech is helping to bridge that gap. In another frontline bunker, we saw how commercially available drones are giving Ukraine an edge. Wow. That's incredible because we've just seen an artillery uh, strike in this position that the Ukrainian drone operators have identified as being full of Russians. Like you can see, Russian soldiers, as we look at them live now, running for cover as Ukrainian artillery pounds their positions. But battery commanders at the front line, like two tell me they're now running low on ammunition rounds. And that even guns sent from the United States are breaking under such constant strain they need more of both they say if this battle for bakhmut is ever to be won matthew chance cnn in bakhmut eastern ukraine
0: Well, call it an inside look at the turmoil at Twitter, a former trust and safety executive who left the company just weeks ago, sitting down for an interview at a digital policy conference in Florida, the ex-employee delivering a searing indictment of Elon Musk's leadership. Claire Duffy joins me now. So, Claire, this is an executive who not long ago said that Twitter was safer with Elon Musk at the helm. Why the about face? Did he address that?
7: Right, so this is UL Roth's first time. He's Twitter's former head of trust head of trust and safety. This is his first time speaking out since leaving the company. Uh, publicly. And so, you know, he did sort of address this about face. He talked about the fact that when Musk first took over the company, there was this trolling campaign. I'm sure everybody remembers the surge in hate speech on the platform. And he talked about the fact that, that his team was able to address that and build technology to take care of that problem. But it seems that things sort of deteriorated from there. And in the early days, Musk did seem to be trying to continue to appease Twitter's advertisers, which requires keeping the platform safe. So you have to imagine that sort of played in. But Joel Roth then talked about the fact that Musk launched this updated version of Twitter subscription product, Twitter Blue, and that the trust and safety team had predicted all of the problems that happened, you know, the impersonation of prominent accounts. He said that they had told Musk that that was going to happen and that Musk decided to, to launch the product anyways, and that seemed to really sort of have been the breaking point for him. And he addressed this in an op-ed in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago when he talked about the future of Twitter under Musk. And he sort of talked about the fact that Musk is going to be the, the chief decider. As chief twit at Twitter, Musk is going to be the person who's going to make these decisions, you know, sort of regardless of the fact, or, you know, regardless of the advice that he's receiving from the staff or whether or not these are good decisions.
0: Well, I mean, I think that's certainly clear, Claire. I guess we'll see, you know, as the weeks go on what that then looks like. Claire Duffy, good to have you. Let's turn to some health news now. An exciting development in the fight against Alzheimer's disease. Data from a clinical trial show an experimental drug appears to counteract the effects of the disease. It's one of the first treatments to slow the decline of brain function in someone with Alzheimer's. But the trial also found some adverse effects were more common among people taking the drug. Joining me now is CNN's senior medical correspondent Elizabeth Cohen. Uh, Wonderful to have you. So how promising is this new drug, Elizabeth?
8: Rahel, no question. It's promising, but it is far from a cure. And there are some issues that doctors and patients are really going to have to talk about if this gets approved, and that's an if. This has not been approved yet. So let's take a look at what the study found when they looked at this drug. So they took about 1,800 people who had mild, sort of early stage um, Alzheimer's disease, ages 50 to 90, split them in half. Half of them got a placebo. Half of them got the real drug. After 18 months, so it took a while for this to kick in, after 18 months, those who were taking the drug saw a 27% you <laughs> decline, uh, in or slower cognitive decline, I should say. In other words, there was still cognitive decline, but it was 27% lower or slower than those who got the placebo. Also, their amyloid levels dropped. So amyloid levels are, uh, amyloid is that plaque that gets in the brain of people with Alzheimer's. Now, here's the question. Are those improvements, and there's no question that those are improvements, are those improvements enough to really make the difference for someone with Alzheimer's? Will they feel those improvements Will it make a difference in their daily lives? And you have to weigh that against the potential downsides. And here are the potential downsides. They did find some adverse effects. So what they found was that folks who were taking the drug, 17% of them had brain bleeding and 12% of them had brain swelling. Now, some folks who got the placebo also had those two things, but it was a much, much lower percentage. So this is going to be something that the FDA will have to consider uh, when they review this drug. It's expected that the FDA uh, could be issuing some kind of a decision within weeks. But on the other hand, in this study published in the New England Journal of Medicine, the author said that longer studies need to be done. So unclear if the FDA is going to say, hey, you know what, guys, we're not ready to make a decision on this yet, or if they will make a decision soon. Rahel?
0: Well, Elizabeth, you know, I think we can all relate to knowing someone with Alzheimer's and there still seems to be so little out there to help them. If this doesn't turn out to be the answer, are there more potential solutions in the pipeline?
8: So there is so little out there, Rahel. You are absolutely right. A drug did come out last year. It was the first drug in about 20 years, the first novel treatment for Alzheimer's disease. And it's been, well, for some have said a bit disappointing. It's not nearly used as much as one might think. It's been, there have been some problems with it. And um, so for that reason, it's unclear exactly what these new drugs will bring. There are hundreds of drugs being studied for Alzheimer's disease. They're in the pipeline at various stages. We'll see what they do and what kind of side effects they might have.
0: A lot of people watching that. Senior medical correspondent Elizabeth Cohen, yes. wonderful to have you. Thank you. Thanks. Straight ahead, a slowing pace for the Fed, raising rates. Investors are waiting to hear from Jerome Powell for hints on the central bank's next move. I discuss with Invesco's chief strategist after the break. And later, too fast, too furious, and too dirty, Lamborghini's <laughs> CEO will Hop in the passenger seat with the dirt on its new all-terrain supercar. Yes, you heard that right. We'll explain. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. And as we mentioned at the top of the show, an updated estimate of third quarter growth for the U.S. showed the economy grew a strong 2.9 percent. That rebound is good news for investors after two straight quarters of negative growth. Investors are now bracing for a speech from Federal Reserve Chairman Jay Powell later today. we will be listening carefully on any clues on the pace of future interest rate hikes. Joining me now is Christina Hooper. She is the Chief Global Market Strategist at Invesco. Christina, wonderful to have you today. So as you know, anytime Chairman Powell speaks, there is a reading of the tea leaves. What are you going to be listening for?
9: Well, actually, Rahel, I might surprise you by saying I'm not too concerned with what Jay Powell is going to say today. We have a few weeks until the FOMC meeting. And so while I think he is going to be measured, I think he's going to be balanced – I'm not sure he's going to reveal a lot at this meeting. Keep in mind that he's waiting for trends to form, right? We certainly got a good inflation reading, um, but that needs to be supported by other data. And so Mm. I suspect that he's going to be guarded. Uh, Clearly, uh, it seems a fait accompli that the Fed is only going to hike rates 50 basis points in December. But I don't think the Fed has much visibility beyond that. The big question on everyone's mind is when are they going to hit the pause button? And I just don't think he's going to reveal that today because he doesn't know.
0: I mean, that's fair, right? I mean, on the one hand, you could say Jay Powell has mastered the art of Fed speak, which is, you know, saying a lot of things, but not really saying much at all. And on the other hand, you could say that the data just isn't there yet. I mean, they talk often about being data dependent. Uh, Christina, the last U.S. CPI report, which you just alluded to there, uh, was promising for investors, right? It showed a slowing, certainly more than expected. We also got some new data in the Eurozone that inflation has fallen for the first time in more than a year. Have we reached a turning point in global inflation?
9: I do believe we have. And so that means that we're likely to get good news from central banks going forward. Um, But that's a big if in terms of how data plays out from here. Um, Because you could have a a big COVID wave that could disrupt supply chains, that could add to some inflationary pressures. Um, You could have some issues that present potholes on the journey. But I do believe we're moving in the right direction. It's just how quickly we're moving in the right direction. And Mm -hmm. are central banks satisfied? They're certainly satisfied enough to downsize rate hikes, but I don't think they're satisfied enough to hit the pause button just yet.
0: Fair enough. And investors, I think, will take certainly uh, the downsize when they can get it. Uh, Christina, we get quite a bit of data on the economic front in the U.S. this week. We get the JOLTS data later this week. We get the, of course, all-important jobs report. In this environment where sometimes it feels like good news is bad news and bad news is good news, what would a, what would a promising economic report look like on Friday? Would it be slower job growth, maybe in the 100s, and the low 200s? What are you going to be looking for?
9: Actually, Rahel, I'm going to be focused on wage growth. Um, because Mm -hmm. that really is uh, uh, the sticky part of inflation that's been problematic thus far, although we did see an easing in the most recent jobs report. So I want to see a continuation of that trend. And I suspect that that is going to be the biggest focus for FOMC members as well. We don't need to drive up unemployment that much if we can exert some downward pressure on wage growth. Um, Keep in mind, there are a lot of job openings. So even if companies slash job openings, um, as opposed to, uh, for example, laying off many workers, we could achieve the same result. Uh, So to me, the most important single component of the jobs report on Friday is going to be wage growth.
0: And I think, to your point, I mean, that is certainly something that Powell has said that he is trying to accomplish. And we'll learn more about that, right, when we get the Jolts report. I mean, how many job vacancies are starting to decline? I think Powell would certainly like to see that. Uh, Speaking of data, we got the GDP report today, the second estimate that showed it was an upward revision. But what got my attention was because uh, it was an upward revision largely because of consumer spending. And, of course, we're just coming off of Black Friday. We're coming off of Cyber Monday, where the consumer just continues to spend— On the one hand, it is a sign perhaps of consumer strength. On the other hand, is this what Powell and the Fed wants to see right now as just continuing to spend at all costs, even with inflation at what it is right now? Well, it's certainly not ideal, um, but Powell is going to focus
9: on inflationary pressures, and we have seen goods prices by and large Um, ease. And and so that is not the main concern. Uh, So if there is a way that we could see a soft or softish landing, we'd likely see the consumer remaining relatively strong, especially since we have such a tight labor market. If some of those other pressures could ease, I think the Fed would be satisfied. Um, They're not just going to be looking at inflation, though. They're going to be looking at inflation expectations, particularly consumer inflation expectations. So I think that's going to be part of the equation as
2: well.
0: And I think if and correct me if I'm wrong, but consumer inflation expectations have remained pretty anchored as of now. So, you know, here's hoping on the inflation front they remain that way. Christina, one thing that I think about a lot is the last time we heard from Powell, he made some comments that seemed to indicate that uh, the committee is aware that the full impact of these rate hikes probably has not been felt or has not been seen in the economy in a sense, an acknowledgement that they know that there is a risk of overdoing it. What are they going to be looking at? What data are they going to be looking at to see are they actually doing too much?
9: Well, I I think you're absolutely right, Rahel. That's an important, important realization um, that there tends to be a lag. And so what the Fed is going to do in response is to essentially downsize their rate hikes and perhaps um, wait a little longer in between rate hikes. So they're going to look at, you know, all the data. They want to look holistically uh, at the economy to see if they've created a lot of economic damage. I don't think there's one particular data point that's going to be very important over some others. I think it's getting a picture of the economy. Um, So the best way to do that is to allow a little time for the economy Mm -hmm. to digest the rate hikes we've had. And and of course, as I said, downsize rate hikes going forward. So it could be um, that we get to our pause early in the first quarter, or uh, perhaps by the end of the first quarter. And that certainly um, would be uh, enough time for the Fed to assess what's happening and and be comfortable with the inflation picture, even if the economy hasn't gone into any kind of significant Mm -hmm. downturn. Mm
0: -hmm. Essentially a wait and see, a, a breather. Let's just let this play out. Let's see how this is actually being felt in the real economy.
9: Absolutely. I mean, it's critical that the Fed do that. Um, There has just been an enormous synchronized tightening cycle this year, and we just don't know how much damage it's done to the global economy uh, or the U.S. economy. It looks like the U.S. economy has held up better than other economies, but we just don't know until um, we give it some time.
0: Yeah. Christina Hooper, wonderful to have you today. She is the chief global market strategist at Invesco. Appreciate your insights. And coming up, former Chinese leader Zhang Zumen has died. How will he be remembered next? Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks up and running this Wednesday, the last trading day of November, mostly flat open, pretty much across the averages. The Nasdaq, the biggest gainer there, up three-tenths of one percent. It's really a reflection, though, of how much is riding on Fed Chair Jerome Powell's policy speech later today. Stocks barely budging after a stronger-than-expected read on third-quarter GDP. That report was good news for the U.S. economy. That said, a separate report suggesting today that private sector hiring in the U.S. is slowing. Firms adding only 127,000 new positions this month. For context, Wall Street was looking for growth of almost 200,000. Now, despite today's tepid action, November is actually turning out to be a profitable month for all the major averages. The Dow coming into today's session up more than 3%. The Nasdaq set to end the month pretty much flat, but the S&P is up about 2% on the month. I think investors will take it at this point. Apple, though, one of the tech sector's worst performance off some 8% for the month. Much of that due to concern over slowing iPhone production in China during lockdowns. And Elon Musk's recent tweet storm targeting Tim Cook. Well, that's not helping sentiment either. Apple falling once again today for a third straight session, trading at about 141 a share. And turning now to one of our top stories, former Chinese leader Zheng Zumen has died at the age of 96. He led the country after the 1989 Tiananmen Square protests, paving the way for China's rise as an economic power. Christy Lou Stout has a look at his life and legacy.
10: He was the communist hardliner with a softer side. Jiang Zemin was also a shrewd and cunning politician. He rose to the pinnacle of power after the massacre of pro-democracy demonstrators in Tiananmen Square in 1989. He didn't order the crackdown, but was handpicked by the man who did, Supreme Leader Deng Xiaoping. A year after the bloodshed, Jiang Zemin told America's ABC News it was, quote, "...much ado about nothing." At first, he was written off by most as a political lightweight who wouldn't last. He was known as the flowerpot, lots of decoration and no action, but history would prove them wrong.
5: Jiang Zemin has had many more successes than failures, Um, and he surprised many people with his staying power.
10: As leader, he courted the military and was determined to keep the communists in power while pushing ahead with economic reforms.
5: He's definitely not going to be remembered as China is Gorbachev. He's not even close.
10: On an official U.S. visit in 1997, Jiang was lauded by Wall Street and chastised by President Bill Clinton over human
5: rights. On this issue, we believe the policy of the government is on the wrong side of
8: history.
10: But he never gave ground on political reforms and explained why during a rare interview with CNN.
8: I do think that to require all countries to
1: adopt the same model of democracy would itself be undemocratic."
10: He was leader when Hong Kong was handed back to the mainland, when Beijing was awarded the Olympics and business people were allowed to become communists. In 2003, he retired as president. A year after that, he gave up his last post as China's military commander, completing the first smooth leadership transition ever in communist China. I want to thank you for accepting my resignation," he said at the time. Jiang still exerted political influence behind the scenes for years, including the selection of current Chinese leader Xi Jinping, who secured a norm-busting third term as party head. Xi, China's most powerful leader in decades, has eviscerated political rivals, including those in Jiang's faction and rolled back much of the economic and personal freedoms enjoyed during the Jiang era. In retirement, Jiang reportedly sang an aria at Beijing's National Grand Theater before it was officially opened. For a man who once ruled more than a billion people, the performance was said to be the fulfillment of a lifetime ambition.
0: And the impact of China's zero-COVID strategy is a major talking point at the World Travel and Tourism Council Summit, which is taking place in Saudi Arabia. The meeting is also a huge opportunity for the host country to showcase its trillion-dollar investment plan. Richard Quest sat down with the CEO of Saudi Tourism Authority and asked him about the kingdom's new airport and upcoming so-called giga projects.
3: I think this is a regional play. Whatever Saudi is doing is not just doing it for for its own country within its political borders. The spillover at a regional level is what we believe uh, the opportunity lies, and it's our responsibility to make sure that the good of tourism serves the whole region.
5: So you have all these projects, the giga-projects as they're called, I mean, what's happening with them, besides large sums of money? Have have you actually done anything yet?
3: You, however, were with us last night at the Derea and you saw the first maybe 3% of the total development of that Giga project. And I will leave the judgment of how charming and beautiful uh, it is to you. But right in the uh, first quarter of next year, we're gonna see the Red Sea project also uh, opening its doors with three resorts. The big question is
5: if and when alcohol Is going to be allowed to be served in all these uber luxury resorts that you're building because if you're going to try and attract the uh, Western American visitor they'd like a drink with dinner
3: it's a speculation we have uh, different scenarios we'll wait and see you're not gonna tell me I've already told you, this is, uh, (laughs) you've asked me this question before, and uh, we still believe that there is a lot to offer in Saudi uh, without alcohol.
0: So, I guess he did not tell Richard Quest. (laughs) And coming up, hugs and high fives in space. Chinese astronauts taking their brand new space station out for a spin. The latest on a historic day in orbit coming up next. Welcome back. And you can call it a high flying housewarming party hundreds of miles above the earth. A team of astronauts docking at China's almost complete space station today to help finish construction. It is the beginning of China's long term presence in space. So let's bring in Kristen Fisher. So, Kristen, when we say long term, as I understand it, it's six months. Help me understand the significance of this.
6: Well, this is a big deal because, you know, up until this point, Only the United States and its partners at the International Space Station have been able to have a continuous human presence in low Earth orbit. That's the orbit right around the Earth. And it's something that is not only incredibly technically complicated to pull off, but it's also very expensive as well. And so that has only been done by the United States and its partners up at the ISS until yesterday. That all changed yesterday when China launched that rocket, the Shenzhou rocket that you see there, uh, and sent three new astronauts, or taikonauts as they're called in China, uh, to its new space station. And what was really significant about that moment is the crew changeover, or the, the change of command, so to speak. That new crew, going to be replacing the crew that's up there. And that's really the significant moment here, because there are now going to be— uh Chinese taikonauts living and working in space continuously at the same time as you have NASA astronauts and Russian cosmonauts and European Space Agency astronauts working at their own space station. And so this is a big moment because it really solidifies China's stance as a dominant space power, one that truly rivals uh, the United States in space. And, you know, Rachel, uh, this is really going to help China have the training that it needs to do what it really wants to do, which is to land taikonauts on the South Pole of the Moon, uh, which is where you might find water in the form of ice down on the South Pole of the Moon, two things very critical to build a, a lunar base and even potentially rocket fuel someday. And it has some real geopolitical implications as well, because We've seen and we've talked so much about NASA's new Artemis program. It is ultimately aiming to do the exact same thing, land astronauts on the south pole of the moon and build a base there. So you can see why NASA Administrator Bill Nelson has been saying uh, repeatedly over the last few weeks and months that he believes that the U.S. is indeed in a second space race, only this time with China.
0: Rachel? Okay. Kristen Fisher, we'll leave it there. Thank you. And coming up after the break, cover your ears. A new Lamborghini is coming, and this one can go where normal supercars cannot. We'll do the dirt right after the break. And you cannot mistake that engine sound, but what you're seeing might surprise you. This insane-looking supercar is Lamborghini's first all-wheel drive, and they actually encourage you to take it off-road. Now, it might be hard to traverse the desert, but the Huracan Sturito can be driven on dirt roads. That's pretty much the same as an average street here in Manhattan. And as this publicity video shows, it can be used to cut corners on the racetrack. This limited edition model will be the last pure combustion engine Lamborghini to be released as the company transitions to hybrids. Stefan Winkelmann is the CEO. Stefan, wonderful to have you today. So lots to discuss. Look, so it's the last with a pure combustion engine, but the first sports car that's essentially an ATV. When I think of Lambo sports cars, I think pretty low to the ground. So how did you how did you do both? Both low to the ground and an ATV? Help me understand that.
4: It's unexpected. Uh, it's a car, as you said, now, which is able to go on a racetrack. And it's all-terrain, so it has more ground clearance than the other Huracans. Uh, it's a car which is combining uh, the fun to drive on uh, street legal roads and also the opportunity to go outside those uh, uh, type of uh, uh, concrete uh, roads. So as our, as our climb is uh, beyond the concrete. And then for sure, it's also a lot of lifestyle. And I've driven the car several times. Uh, it's... Uh, I think uh, the car which gives you uh, fun and pleasure, pure and all type of terrains. And this is very, very positive for the brand. And I think here we are again, uh, unexpected and authentic as Lamborghini.
0: Unexpected for sure. So walk me through, who are you trying to attract? Who's the uh, ideal customer for this type of model?
4: You know that we have three models. We have the V12, we have the V10. Uh, which is the huracan, and then we have an suv uh it's clear that uh, we have a very young um, customer base and we're attracting a lot of customers uh, with this car which uh, really enjoy uh, let's say the drifting and the fun of riding a car which has uh, the look of a super sports car but is able to do also different things and uh, mm. This is something which uh, we know we are presenting the car live uh, tonight at the Art Basel uh, in Miami. And uh, we are limiting uh, the, the, the number and uh, a good part of them are already sold without even looking at the car, well, just by yeah. seeing the teasers.
0: I noticed that limiting production to just about 1500 Safan, Stefan, certainly when you think Lambo, you think fun, as you just pointed out. But as the company shifts to electrification, and look, you haven't always been uh, the biggest fan of electrification. I mean, you've said before that uh, one of the challenges, perceived performance and sound and how that impacts the brand. You're clearly embracing it now. But how do you maintain the core Lambo audience but shift to electrification?
4: But the first step, I think, is already uh, well prepared from our side. Uh, in 23 and 24, we are going to hybridize all of our lineup. So we will stay with the internal combustion engines. We will have a complete new B12 uh, when the follow up of the Aventador is coming on the market next year. And then in 24, uh, with the, the hybridization of the Urus and the f- uh, complete new Huracan at the, at the, at the end of 24. Uh, we will accomplish uh, what we promised. So it's very easy. On the one hand, uh, we have uh, more sustainable cars. In fact, we are going to reduce uh, the CO2 emissions by 20 or starting from 25 in comparison of today by 50%. And uh, the promise we have to uh, give to the customers, and this is something we will uh, keep, is the fact that these cars are going to be more performing than the ones uh, we have today. And the sound will say... Then by Mm -hmm. the end of this decade, we will have the first full electric car. And for sure here, in my opinion, uh, the fun to drive will be there. The design will be uh, very appealing as a true Lamborghini. And we are working also a lot on not only the the longitudinal acceleration, but what you call lateral acceleration. So how you get into the corners, out of the corners. So handling and uh, 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 let's say, the opportunity to go also on, on round tracks on race tracks, And I think this is something... Please, go ahead.
0: Well, I wanted to actually follow up on that. So by 2028, I think, as you pointed out, uh, Lamborghini will be fully electric. So uh, I take your point that the performance aspects will be improved and fine-tuned. What about the sound when Lamborghinis are fully electric? Will you still be able to uh, create that classic Lamborghini sound?
4: So the the sound will be different, for sure. We have to decide. This is something uh, which we are working on. There are different uh, opportunities. For sure, the first full electric car, which is coming in 28, will be an additional model, uh, a model number four, uh, which will be the first one. It will be more GT cars, so daily usable car, 2 plus 2 with uh, more luggage compartment. And then the super sports cars, they will be, Um, at the beginning of the 30s and i think with the uh, upcoming technology with and also all the things we have in mind we will have uh, also a new generation of car drivers which will embrace Mm. this much easier on the sound as you said this is something which you cannot fake so we have to find a different way which will not be the sound of an internal engine for sure
0: Well, Stefana, I think one thing that might surprise viewers at home is that uh, Lamborghini, and correct me if I'm wrong, posted its best nine-month performance in its history, even with inflation, even with rising interest rates. I mean, how is the company still being able to post this type of growth? I mean, where are you seeing the strongest growth?
4: The strongest growth is uh, not uh, in one particular market because our order bank is lasting more than 18 months right now. So we have a a sales increase by 8% in comparison uh, to last year, but our turnover is increasing by 38% and the profit even more, almost 70%, which is then, uh, in fact, uh, the thing which matters most. And uh, this means that uh, we, are making out, uh, we are making more profit out of each and every car because the, the people are buying uh, the high dairy rates, so the ones which are uh, more performing, more expensive, and they put more options, more individualization into the cars. And as we speak, we are still selling more cars every month that we are able to produce and deliver. I think this is due to the fact that... Uh, Uh, The the brand is very uh, um, loved by all over the the world. We have uh, an incredible uh, customer base, but also a huge fan base, which is very large also on social media. So despite, uh, um, um, I don't know, increasing of interest rates uh, and all the things you were naming before, we are still going strong. And uh, we are very cautious in our planning. So we are not uh, trying to reach uh, for some peaks because Mm. uh, our business is Uh, uh, about uh, volumes, but it's mobility. It's about fulfilling dreams. And therefore, it's very important to keep it safe.
0: Well, clearly very strong, as you said, with a a wait list of 18 months there. Stefan Winkelmann, CEO of Lamborghini. I'm sure a lot of car companies would love to have that same problem. And that is it for the show. I'm Rahel Solomon. Thanks for watching. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is next.